0: Leaving Las Vegas contains strong opinions and strong language. Listener discretion is advised.
1: I've got to stop saying really, really. By the way, I double up on that a lot, and it pisses me off. I'll make you do it when I stop saying. Basically, so ju- <laughs> I say just as well when I'm writing. I wrote. Do you know I did one of those word things where it pictured... the when bigger go the word. We completely off. Topic, yes, all well. right. Leaving Las Vegas. Uh, uh. Leaving Las Vegas. I tell you what, because people have been really interested in the film podcasts and we get people say, it's really enjoyable to listen to you when you're passionate about film, even if Mm. you're, even if it's passionate about a film that you really don't like, you know, they just sort of enjoy that, that passion. And I wanted to talk a little bit about where my love of film comes from and specifically where my love of unusual film comes from. And I wanted, and I was like, well, what's the best way to approach and come at that with an angle without just talking about film? Yeah, And then So I landed on the idea of talking about the video shop and just the video shop as a concept, but then also what it meant to me. And I thought it might be just quite nice to do a nostalgia piece because the video shop doesn't exist anymore. So do a bit of a love affair and a reminiscence about the video shop. So I've made made a few notes to sort of guide me through this because it's a bit of a journey. Starting out is talking about the high street. So I was born in 75 Uh and this period of what I'm going to discuss probably goes from when I was about 8 to when I was about 20. So it's like a 15 15 to 17 year period. So we're starting at 1983 and we'll go through to like 96 or whatever. So when I was a kid... I grew up in Barkinside in Essex which is sort of on the board was on the border of East London and uh, Essex and East London and mm-hmm. I think now it's considered London and it was the you know the end of the central line and it was but it was kind of like a small town yeah. and it had one high street. The High Street when you were growing up was the center of your universe. Maybe you'd get a bus over to the neighboring town but you you know when you were young you're not getting on trains and things like that. The high street that we had, and I'm pretty sure it was probably the same in all of the small towns, was a hell of a lot more diverse and interesting and multifaceted than high streets today. High streets today are essentially fried chicken shops and pound shops and pretz, you know, that's it. You're just lunch food. Fried chicken, literally fried chicken on every high street, four or five different types, and a pound shop and a a shitty supermarket. And that's kind of it. That's all of your options. When I was, let's say, you know, 10 years old, on Barkingside High Street, which is a small town, at one end you had a cinema, a bingo hall, a library and a swimming pool. Mm. No way do you have a cinema on every high street now or a swimming pool on every high street? It's just no, and we're, we're just a small town. Do- the next town over, Gants Hill, had a swimming pool and a cinema. At the other end, you had a McDonald's, you had a park, mm-hmm. you had a haberdashery for the parents to buy, you know, or mums to buy knitting and mm. sewing materials and stuff like that. You had a toy shop, you know, with remote control cars and transformers and stuff like that, and you had an arcade, mm. and oh, and and a vinyl store as well. So a record, so you've got a record store with a hippie in it who loves his Deep Purple and stuff like that. You've got arcades with Street Fighter and nineteen forty two and all of these, and air hockey yeah. and stuff like that. Proper but, fruit machine, yeah, proper fruit machines, pinball machines. So that High Street caters for everyone. Dad's rock and roll. Kids' arcade games and sweets, pick and mix in Woolworths. And I'm sounding like one of those, oh, it was better in my day. Mm. You know, one of these gruff old... But the high street is one example that was that was better in our day. Oh. There is There is so much to do there of an afternoon to play with your mates, hang out with your mates. And one of the things that really attracted me and appealed to me was the video shop mm. which was you know what another thing that was on there to do and the video shop the video shop that we had in Barkingside because it was a small town was a shitty little box family run box called Star Time Video and when i say a box it was like if you think of key cutters mm. you know or shoe repairs these tiny little hovels and because it was small i would argue it probably had at most let's say a thousand titles. It didn't have a huge blockbuster video style collection. You know, your average blockbuster has like 8,000 titles. So it had a very sort of curated little selection. And I used to love going in there with my best friend after school. And you'd go in and you would walk around the shop and you'd look at all of these video covers and you would imagine what those stories were like. And you'd yeah. pick up the boxes of the ones that appeal to you and you'd look at the back and you'd look at the pictures and you'd read the blurb and you would just imagine what was in those films. And then go in there like two or three times a week, when you'd seen a new film, you wanted to tell your friend, I've seen that one. You know, when you'd seen a horror film, because your brother or your sister rented it out with their mates and they let you sit and watch it because your parents were out for their one weekly drink and bunk up or whatever, you'd you'd run in there with your mate and go, we saw that last night, Children of the Corn, or whatever, and you'd tell them about the most grisly, gruesome murder. I didn't have a video player at home so I'd just even make up and lie that I'd said I'd seen it, and they'd just make up and lie the most outrageous sort of murder-death-kill that was in the, oh, you know, the, you know, the, with the chainsaw and blah, 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 and then they'd seen it, and they'd be like, Hey, that just doesn't happen, you know, you get totally caught out. But I used to go in there and just imagine these films day in, day out, and... Um, It was just a, you know, that was my little mecca. I couldn't afford, I'd play, you know, say, let's say I had a pound, I'd go and play a bunch of arcades and then Mm. I'd just go in there and look again. And I just ended up going in there all the time and just having my imagination sparked by these stories. And something else that needs to be given for context, which is really fascinating, because people probably don't know, the video shop probably hasn't existed as a thing for a decade now. Yeah let's say, probably even more, maybe even 15 years. So there are going to be people listening, hopefully, who maybe don't even have that great a memory of what an anchor point the video shot was because you had the movies that were on telly yeah. or you had the video shot. And that, those were your only choices. And you didn't choose the movies that were on telly, they just played. Mm-hmm. So you had the curated choice for the, from the BBC for you. Or yeah. if you wanted something of your own choice, you had to go and choose it. But what was different then to what's different now? was the release windows. And people probably don't realize this. We're talking about, say, 1985 now, between 83 and 88. And this only really changed with Disney much later on in probably the early 90s. A film would be on at the cinema, and it would play for about three months, let's say. And it would only come to the cinema when it had finished its American run. And the reason for that was was because film used to be film. It used to be a 35mm print and they were expensive and they were heavy to transport. So what they would do is they would play the American run if they were an American movie mm. and then those prints would ship internationally yeah. second hand. Now if it was a big, big film, and because Britain's the second largest territory for film in the world or it probably was then, I'm not sure if France has pipped it now or whatever, China, sorry.
0: China's definitely China's picked China's
1: definitely picked it, of course. China's almost bigger oh, than... Oh, yeah, it's probably parallel, realistically. As,
0: yeah, China is probably about the same as the US and UK
1: yeah, released yeah, together. yeah, yeah, let's say that's probably about right. But at the time, it was very much America than England. Obviously, China had its own industry and India mm. had its own industry. But anyway, so if it was a big movie then the UK would get its own new prints. But if it was a smaller movie, they'd get shipped used prints from America and they'd be dirty by now and they'd be scratched by now. So you'd have all these weird cute little jumps and bumps in the film. You know, things that I'm very warm and nostalgic for. I miss my Q dots and I miss my bad changeovers and stuff like that. Anyway, so a film would play in America for three months, then it would play for in England for three months. Then you had a six month window until it was available to rent. And then it was available to rent for a year. And then it could be on TV and TV had another six month window or maybe even a year window Mm -hmm. and then you could buy it. So you could buy a film for $13.99 on VHS tape three years after it had originally played in American cinema, Yeah, which is just an unheard of window. That's like, you know, you're buying the first Iron Man after the third Iron Man has played or, you know, after there's been six... Just a crazy, crazy release window. So if you wanted to see something and it had gone from the cinema, you had to wait a big chunk of time, which built anticipation and excitement, and then it would play in the shop. Now the retail shop would buy a copy from a wholesaler's. Those copies, for one copy of let's say Gremlins, one copy, it was seventy-nine ninety-nine. That and this is nineteen eighty-four we're talking about. So like three hundred pounds yeah. today. So one copy of a film was seventy-nine ninety nine. So if a shop wanted four copies of one film, that's a serious outlay. Yeah. That's got they've got to rent it twenty-five times. And Gremlins is gonna rent twenty-five times, three weeks worth of rentals, yeah. You know, for it to pay itself off and turn profit. But then you've got your store rental costs and your electricity and your staff costs. So the margins of very, very small. What also appeared in the early 80s when the video boom happened and everyone got videotapes in their houses was there was a very small cabal of companies that noticed that there were tons and tons of movies that had played in drive-in theatres and B-movie theatres and stuff like that that didn't quite have the cadre of Indiana Jones and the pull of Indiana Jones, but had enough brilliant sex and violence and outrageous stories that people at home could see movies that they wouldn't ordinarily know about. So what they do is they package up with outrageous statements about it being the most gruesome movie ever made, really violent, savage covers of women hanging on meat hooks and screaming, you know, with blade, bloody blades in front of them. Yeah. Put a, the bloodiest images possible on the back, and they would sell those films for twenty nine ninety nine. So the RRP price was twenty nine ninety nine. And the shops could recoup their their money on that because they rent them out for the same price much, Mm. much quicker. Star Time Video, being a small little mum and pup, couldn't afford any of these big movies at all. So it didn't have Indiana Jones, it didn't have Star Wars, it didn't have any of those movies, but it had Star Chaser or it had King Solomon's Minds and it had a brilliant, massive horror section of video covers with outrageously gory, violent, you know, movies with titles like Anthropophagus the Beast or Three on a Meat Hook or Nightmares in a Damaged Brain. You know, just crazy. They had the most outrageous selection of films. So I was going in there every day looking at the horror section imagination racing on what these most of these films are absolutely terrible by the way but falling in love with cinema but falling in love with a cinema that nobody else has has any interest in (laughs) or has ever heard of you know And, and me not knowing that these weren't the movies that people watched, you know, me just going, Oh, have you I've I saw this last time people going, I've never I've never even extra, you know, people going, Oh, have you seen poltergeist? And I'm like, What's poltergeist? <laughs> you know? So I was getting this really unusual left field love for film. So anyway I'm going in the video shop every single day and the guy who worked in there, Dave, he was sort of a young stoner dude, just sort of noticed that I was always going in there but never renting a film. And he was like, hey kid, what's the deal? You know, you come in there every day. And I was like, oh, I just like the video covers and have you seen that? Is that exciting? And stuff like that. But he was like, why don't you ever rent anything? And I was like, oh, I don't have a video player. I didn't own a, we, were, we were We were poor, you know. And video was quite new and mm. expensive. So we didn't have a video player. And he was like, well, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal. If you hoover my carpets and you wash my window, I'm eight years old at this point, maybe nine years old, and I know that because I was thinking about this the other day and I was thinking about the first movies that I watched, and I remember when certain movies came in, so I remember when uh, Raiders uh, Temple of Doom came in and that was 1986, and I'd already been working there for two years. So let's say I'm nine years old at this point. He's like, if you hoover the carpet and you wash the windows and you take the tags off, so when a video was on loan, it'd have a little red tag on the yeah. top. Do you remember this it says this film's on loan? So it's like, go and get the tags for me and I'll let you sit out the back after school and you can watch a film. Because they, out the back, They've got the video machine that rewinds all the tapes because people don't bring their tapes back around and that pisses off the next customer. He's like, rewind all the tapes and then you can watch one. And he's like, but you can't watch any 18s. So then immediately the 18s are what I wanna watch, but I'll watch the most outrageous 15s that I can possibly get my hand on. So I'd do that every day. I'd come in, do his washing up, go and get him some food from the shop, and then he'd let me watch a film out the back what I then quickly realised is when I'm out the back he gives me the tape but then he's out the front he has no idea what I'm doing so I can start (laughs) switching the tapes out and just listening for him and I start you know I started watching 18s and and children of the corn and and things like that really, and then going into school the next day and saying, I've actually fucking seen this now and you haven't because you've never even heard of it and just going, oh my God, this, and every now and again, some of them really are outrageous and really are quite amazing. So I'm getting into this really obscure movies that I shouldn't be watching and I'm, also working, mm. and it's keeping me. I was being quite bullied at school because I was a different kid. I was outspoken. I didn't see the world the way other people. And I was, and I was being quite bullied at home because my brother was a teenager now, and he wanted girls. And we shared a bedroom, and he wanted girls around. He wanted to drink, and you know, and, and all of those. And I'd squeal him up if he drank or, you know, brother stuff. So mm. this is keeping me away from home, keeping me away from alcoholic father, and and all of that sort of shit. And but it's also fueling my imagination. Yeah. Around about this time, there was an outrage over these movies, saying these movies are corrupting our children, they're really fucking violent, you know, these aren't, the BBC would never show this, Channel 4, which was new at the time, would never, even though that was daring, would never show these films. And uh, the Daily Mail and Mary Whitehouse had a campaign where they campaigned the BBC to try and ban this sick filth, which is where that headline "Ban this sick filth" comes on. And the BBC watched a bunch of these movies, and they put together what was called the Video Recordings Act in 1984, where they outlawed certain behaviours, sexual violence towards women, you know, ver- various words and behaviours were heavily censored, and then movies started to be heavily censored. But a whole bunch of movies were banned. They became a list of 120 or so movies that had to be removed from video store shelves or the video could be prosecuted. And they printed that list in, there was no internet then, so they printed that list in a guide and that guide was referenced in the paper. So now I had a list. (laughs) (laughs) Now I had a list of the movies that I absolutely have to see. And the store that I'm working with, they've got them all. They've got like 109 of these 120 lists. So now I'm the baddest motherfucker in the world, because I've got, and they had to take, so they had to take all of these films off the shelf. It's like a thousand pound or two thousand pound fine per film, and they're a little mum and pup. But obviously they're a little mum and pup who've now got an angle to make a little bit of extra cash with their members in the know, saying they've got these under the counter films and that's not really a term any anymore, but under the counter films was a you know was a real term in the eighties. So they were like they kept all of their copies that they were supposed to send to be destroyed. Oh yeah. And the, yeah, and they would rent them in and then this became, you know, a little bit of a hot spot because they had all of these naughty films. By that point I'd convinced my dad to nick me a video recorder. So now I had a video recorder in my room. So I started, you know, taking these movies home and watching them. But then I started pirating them. I eventually got my hands on a second video recorder somehow. So I started pirating them and then selling them in the school playground. I've got, that, I've got 109 of the 120 most sought of, which all of a sudden made me cool at school, you know, like Craig's the daring, dangerous one. But not only did it make me cool, but I'm becoming an entrepreneurial. I'm seeking out the cheapest tapes that you can get, TDK or Bush. And like, you know, if you buy 10, you get the eight, you'll buy eight, you get the ninth one free. But the Bush one's are terrible quality, so the picture quality isn't as good. You know, just try, you know, doing my market research. and, And I'm, Ten or eleven. I mean, I'm eleven by this point, mm. and I'm learning entrepreneurial, hustling skills and making a bit of money. Probably making more money than you know my older sister by this point. who's was a cleaner. You know, I'm am a hustler. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm an independent film producer. So I make my own fortune. And all of those skills are born out age eleven. But not only that, but I have quite a left, left field view on the world, yeah. and a left field and, and an internationally leaning sort of socialist. Mindset and where that comes from is because in 1987, I'm watching foreign movies. I'm watching movies about dropouts and outcasts, bike gangs, and ninjas. And you know, and I know I now know what a ninja is, or I know what a samurai is. No, and people in school, you know, they're watching American action movies where anything foreign is bad. Yeah. You know, the foreigner, the German or the Japanese man or whatever, they're the bad guy. And the American with the muscles is the good guy. So anything foreign is bad. And if it's a samurai, it's an evil samurai. So I'm, But I'm learning about samurai tradition and, you know, the importance of the sword and honour and, you know, and I'm getting this very, very smart education that I wouldn't be getting anywhere else. And they're not getting, because they're going to Ritz Video, which has got the bigger, more expensive thing. So I wanted to just paint this story and tell talk about this love letter, about this thing that is sort of gone now. There is... Um, I wanted, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this before, but there's the football anecdote. Have I told you about my thoughts on the football anecdote and how this leads <laughs> to Brexit? So everyone in my school, whenever I use the term Jesus blankets... Brexit. I let you do
0: one episode on Brexit and it's all, all roads lead to Brexit. <laughs> all
1: roads. It ties into absolutely everything. Yeah, so when the school that I went to... Yeah. I say everyone. I shouldn't say that because it's not everyone. But let's say a good 85% of the boys in that school liked football and commercial music and commercial films. And I was... You know, I'd heard about punk rock because I'm watching John Waters movies and, you know, John Waters movies with Divine, who's a fucking overweight, sex, cross-dressing man. You know, so I know about cross-dressing and feminism and Rocky Horror Picture Show and, you know, homosexuality. So I'm getting into alternative lifestyles even though I wasn't particularly alternative myself. And they're all into football. And I... Started to clash with them in on the playground, but also in humanities was you know where you have social discussions. Mm. I remember there was a social discussion around about the, around the Jamie Bolger killing, and that was around about 1988. Mm. And I was the lone voice in the class that said the kids who who did that were children. Yes, you've got to remove them from society, but you should put them in a in a facility where you can psychologically evaluate them, try and work out the situation that occurs that leads to two. Very young boys murdering a a child in the most horrific fashion possible. And just being set upon in that class by all of the other kids in the class who were like, no, they should just kill them. They should just put a bullet in these two kids. They're evil. They'll always be evil and Mm. do away with them. My argument being they're just kids themselves... They don't know about social responsibility. We won't learn anything about children's psychology just by killing them. Yeah. You know, I'm probably 14 by this point. In that lesson, in that humanities lesson, and some other things that saw me getting beaten up on the playground and stuff like that, I learned that I don't see the world in the same way that they see the world. But not only that, but I don't see the same world in the same way that my dad does, or my brother does, or maybe even my sister does. So then I'm thinking I'm different and what's different about me? And I didn't, I wasn't thinking this then. I was Mm. just like, oh, why can't I get on with anyone? (laughs) You know, why do I have to pick fights with everyone? But in the intervening years, I've looked back and gone, okay, why am I different? Because I don't think, I don't think I'm more intelligent than the people I went to school. I'm not some special brain that was bought. There was something has gone along the journey that has made me go, okay, what's different? And I put it down to this. I'm watching movies set in New York, set in space, set in the past, set in the future, about gays, about blacks, about oppression, about ruthlessness, you know, some of these movies are incredibly cold and violent. And they're watching movies where good guy gets girl defeats bad guy and stuff like that. But they're also really, really into their football. And football, the message, obviously there are amazing things about sports, teamwork and camaraderie and, you know, a pack, a family pack and stuff. But as a football fan, the narrative and the experience is, this is our ground, these are our boys. You, when you come in here, you are an intruder and an invader and we want to beat you. You mm. are not welcome here. We're gonna square and street and, you know, obviously the majority of people are wholesome and they'll drink in the pub afterwards and they'll go, that was a fun mm. bit of competition. But in the movies of America in the 80s, people who were foreign were bad and in sports, when you're at home, at your ground, and the, you know, if you're Arsenal and Spurs mm. come over, they are not welcome there. They are the whatever they call them, and we're going to throw things at them, and we're going to tell them to go away, and we're going to want to beat them. Yeah. And I think that there is a mindset where I somehow went, the world is a fascinating place. Everyone's a human being. Lots of people are struggling, and there are people that we don't understand, and mm. I want to meet those people. And those people were going, this is our grand, this is our family, and we're going to protect it from the likes of you. Whether they know systemically... It's friend or foe. Yeah,
0: it is. In those American you know, mainstream movies, Hans Gruber, right, in Die Hard, what do you know about the cop that helps him out? It's his last day on the job. Yeah. I, I'm sure you find out a bit about his wife. You get to know about him, friend. What do you know about Hans Gruber? He's German,
1: and he wants to, he wants your money, and he wants to take your <laughs> yeah, money. He wants to that's take your money, like,
0: and that's why people are so. He's in... got
1: no ideology, mm. and he wants to take your money. Yeah, yeah, and he's he's foreign. Like, but it. that's it. There's They're no very... more context. Yeah. he's not like my my kid's got leukemia, and I need one hundred and fifty thousand pounds for an operation, and that's... which you get nowadays yeah, actually. But that's you always get that
0: overly praised that oh it had such a well rounded villain and the best villains are the ones that don't even think they're villains no that's right and I think that there's a whole swath of movies that just don't
1: have that no there was no context in the 80s there was good guy and foreign bad guy
0: and I think that the as you said with the sports mentality and especially in football you have this is my team these and you know oh we're upset when someone leaves the team yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah. and and, oh we're not sure about this guy who's joining our team because he was with our rival your yeah. team and there is this territorialness this protection
1: of your family yeah which and is
0: valuable but combine that with this idea of friend and foe and anyone that isn't your friend anyone that you don't know about or can't relate to you know the two cops talking or relating to each other that's that makes them friends yeah 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 you but, know and
1: that makes you go well, we like them and they're the good guys because they have camaraderie and they have brotherhood yeah. so we're on their side and, and the man that
0: we can't relate to is the enemy yeah
1: yeah, who is always far. So yeah, so but you can't
0: relate to the bad guy because there's nothing. The there's, one there you're not given
1: anything. Yeah, yeah, which which Hollywood has gone some way to rectify. You do get layered and coloured bad, yeah, yeah. bad guys. But the 80s was a particularly stark time. So just a couple of other points on it. So I started working there when I was essentially working there when I was eight. I'm still working there by the time I'm like 14, 15, and now I'm serving customers and doing shifts and getting paid £2.50 an hour or mm. whatever, but also being able to watch any movie. And by this, t- by this point, I've seen every single film in the shop. So by the time I'm 15, I've seen a thousand movies that you've never heard of and fallen in love with a hundred of them. Mm. You've heard of them since over the years, but this was even before the internet. Yeah. So there was a kid at our school, and he was a geeky kid who was picked on as well, but he was geeky in the way that he was super smart and worked really hard and did all his homework. Mm -hmm. Very different to me. I just listened to, you know, fucking punk rock and told everyone to fuck off. His dad had a complete collection of Sight & Sound magazine. And Sight & Sound magazine is the best film publication in the world, and it is run by the British Film Institute, and it has been running for years and years and years. And they review everything, and they do introspective deep dives into world cinema, which is just unhe- you know it was unheard of anywhere else. Again, there was no internet at this time. You know, mm. there was Empire Magazine, and there was the Radio Times. So I used to go to his after school, and we'd go up in the attic where all these and sounds were kept, and we'd you know read about Kurosawa and Tarkovsky, and you know French movies like Betty Blue and stuff like that, and Luc Besson, and, and Chinese cinema. And I worked out very quickly that, because I'd look up some of these movies in the big almanac that you had underneath of every single movie that the warehouse distributor would sell, could sell, everything that they had in stock. I very quickly noticed that these foreign movies were even cheaper than the B horror movies. They were like $19.99, $24.99 each, because nobody at this time watched films with subtitles. And I wanted to see them. So I convinced Dave, who wasn't the boss, but I guess he convinced the boss, he was just staff to give us a little bit of money to create a world cinema section. Mm. Just 20 movies that I really, really wanted to see. It's going to cost them 250 quid, and you never know. Do you know what I mean? So we got our hands on, I think it was John Woo's The Killer. Yeah. So this is 1989 now, maybe pushing 1990, so I'm 14. Um, Rashomon, Betty Blue, you know, so, which I think was 88. Yeah, and a couple of things like that. Maybe even, I remember Delicatessen was one, so I maybe that's 91. And we just had this little world cinema section, but no other video shops in the area had. I watched John Woo's The Killer, and if you've ever seen it, it's just glorious violence. You know, poetic, balletic, wonderful violence and and chaos, doing things with action that no American movie had done yet. So I started pushing that onto customers that I knew liked action. It blew their minds. So then they're like, we want to see more. So you had these labels that specialized in these tiny movies like Palace Pictures that did Evil Dead and Basket Case, and Medusa Pictures, and Vipco. Vipco released all the horrors, but then Vipco had a a movie called Shogun Assassin, which was an amalgamation of the Baby Cart and the River Six series, which was a bunch of movies that they'd chopped down into one 90-minute movie phenomenally violent samurai film. That went great guns. So then we were convincing the bosses to give us a little bit more of a world cinema section. So I'm learning about world cinema. My reading's getting better because I'm reading all these subtitles. I'm getting more intelligent. I'm being entrepreneurial. But also the audience, the customers, are being curated to watch things that they would have never ordinarily picked up on. And this was my final point about what's really sad about the video shop is... Nowadays with Netflix, you have this positive reinforcement algorithm where you go oh I'm going to watch Arrow so then the next four things that you get suggested are other superhero movies Marvel or DC Mm -hmm. or whatever so you watch those and you like them all but your front page starts to be curated to the things you like and the things that you haven't watched yet that you might like or you might not like slowly disappear from your view and you get this positive reinforcement algorithm so you're never going to I'm short of people saying no trust me you have to watch City of God or trust me you have to watch Lehane but because of the positive enforcement algorithm City of God and Lahaine aren't on there mm. they're not on there anymore because nobody watched them in three months so why renew the licence when you went into a video shop and the guy was on the sh- in the store who had curated the shelf for you at some point he's going to convince you to take home a film that you're never he or she sorry to take home a film that you would never have ordinarily to take home and that is going to broaden your horizon in a way that it never would have And it really did happen. I saw it firsthand where people would come back with the killer and go, have you got anything else like that? Yeah. And we got our hands on Ringo lamb City on Fire, which went on to be remade or ripped off Quentin uh, Tarantino with Reservoir Dogs. The reason we got our hands on City on Fire and Ringo Lamb is because Manga and some of the other labels started to recognise this burgeoning scene and interest in foreign language films and managed to, they licensed Akira and Fist of the North Star and stuff like that because the word of mouth was spreading that there's a whole world of really interesting cinema yeah. that you'd never have heard of. So I lament the dying of the video shop because it taught me entrepreneurship, it made me an internationally facing humanitarian, it made me Jump above my peers in my empathy and understanding and inquisitiveness, which led me to travel Mm -hmm. and all of those things. But also, I think because it broadened people's cultural horizons in a way that I worry are now narrowing. Yeah. So, yeah, I just wanted to do a love letter. I think it's sad what's happened to the high street i think it's sad that netflix don't go you've watched a bunch of this we trust us on this Mm -hmm. you know our must recommend of the month is something you would never have thought there are things that can be done to counter this okay and that's my next question if the
0: video store had a very niche but important role to play in film education yeah what is there in the modern world that can take its place.
1: Yeah, I think I mean I think that's a pretty good suggestion on Netflix. There are. There no, are... I mean it's
0: not Netflix isn't a video store. Yeah. Netflix is manga. Netflix is hoovering up all these properties yeah. and going right you've got all this stuff what do you want to watch? And it's like the di- it's, it's like not, gi- it's like giving the distributor catalog to the customer. But it
1: isn't. It isn't doing that at all. One, it's not hoovering anything up. It's looking at its algorithm and it's making only that. So Netflix, look at the data. Yeah, of, yeah. But but they're, but they're not hoovering anything up. They're actually preventing the things that were in that catalog from ever existing in the first place because they are, they own no, but all. But we're the not cars. talking
0: about new news being made because nobody ever made something new off the back of. The world cinema right, right, section right. in the video store.
1: Oh, what, so I, I disagree I, with that. So but what, Fair enough.
0: What I'm saying is that there, there is this. The video store never got anything made. The video store was there to help. It, it was the two tiered cutting through the bullshit. Yeah. One. There's this huge distributors catalogue and then they would choose the films that they put on the shelves. And two, after they got to know you a bit, they would start to say, well, if you like this, why not try something left field that you'll probably like. So... What can, where is that
1: now or where yeah. could it be? So,
0: is, is, does that sit with the podcasting? Is that the digital video story? Yeah,
1: maybe. Yeah, maybe, actually. Yeah, that's mm. a very good point. People get t- tips from Mark Commode and hopefully one day us and stuff like that. Just very quickly on mm. that point, I'm just going to politely disagree a little bit in that mm. a really, really good example. By the time we've got to the I'm 16 years old or whatever, I think the video tape boom did allow movies to get made that would never have otherwise existed because before the videotape boom, you had to have a successful theatrical release. And a really, really good example of that would be Peter Jackson's Bad Taste, Mm. where the investors knew they would get their money back because there is a big enough audience out there for super trashy films on video now that you don't need the big American theatrical release to get your money back. So I do think that cheapo, shitty little twenty nine ninety nine video store managed to create a new audience of fans that allowed new types of low-rent cinema. But wasn't that because Braindead had done No, well. Braindead was after Bad Taste. Bad Taste was first. Bad, Bad Taste, Taste was first? Yeah, Braindead Brain Dead. was 93. Bad Taste was 88, 89. Well, so which was the one that took like 10 years to make? Oh, I don't know if either of them took 10 years to make. Brain Dead got its money off the back of Bad Taste. So bad taste was super no money. Bad taste is the one where the aliens come to Earth and they look big and wobbly and they just cut them all up with chainsaws. Yeah,
0: the, I think that was the one that it,
1: it literally
0: like it might there was, have taken a, ga- 10 years there was to a gap of in filming of three
1: years. Right? Yeah, I could believe something that. Like I, that. I, believe, yeah. I could believe that. But yeah, they only got the finance off that off the back of the fact that they knew they could do DTV numbers, which was direct to video. Mm. But yeah, I I do think that the I do think that the Netflixes and the Amazons could do better. And I think it would behoove them to, in going to their audience, we think you would like this as well Mm. as what you do like. Because if they do, they've got another route to market other than just buying expensive Marvel movies mm-hmm. or making a hundred million dollar brights. Like if you look at Bright, if you look at movies from the 80s like Enemy Mine or oh there was another there was another Monster Cop show. I can't remember what it was called, like The Hidden. Alienation. Alien Nation. Yeah. yeah, well done. Good Think, film. Good
0: Yeah, good yeah, TV yeah. show. Yeah. yeah.
1: Like Alien Nation is Bright essentially. If you go, oh you should try these as well and if you like them, please review them afterwards because it helps us with our mm. algorithm policy if people like them, they could give you 10 10 million brights instead of 100 million brights and Mm. then the audience has got much better. I think they could be doing smarter things to broaden their audience's perspective, Mm. which will keep them as customers longer and make them more satisfied than Mm. they are doing. Maybe it is podcast's job as the video shop clerk, yeah. which is what we're going to try and do this year by talking yeah. about some movies that don't get okay, talked about. I'm
0: going to give you a challenge then. Okay. Um, we'll end on this. Oh, I do
1: like not doing a challenge. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I want 100 movies people could be watching.
1: Yeah, let's start with 50. So, I mean, you don't oh, have, like, to, give me, anywhere, you don't have to give me a list
0: of 100 movies, but I'm just saying over the next year, I want. Just a hundred movies. movies. And what we'll do is we'll do a short podcast for each one. That's great. The caveat is you have to be able to see them on one of the streaming Oh, platforms. that's
1: difficult. Well, you yeah, know, actually, Amazon Prime has a really, really good library of, of buyable... hundred films,
0: uh, yeah. and they have to be available as part of the subscription yeah. or to rent or buy on a streaming yeah.
1: service. So really quickly if you loved get out watch society. That will that I'll do I'll do one on society. But a really good start of if you loved get out watch society. And that's what each of them should Yeah. Be. Awesome. Awesome. That's a great challenge. I look forward to not, not doing it. Okay. No, that's a great challenge. Let's go for it. So, yeah, my little love letter to the video shop explains a bit where my love of film comes from, why my views are so left field, and how it sort of created the professional person that I am today, which isn't very professional. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving Las Vegas starred Craig Tui and Colin Wallace and
0: was produced by Craig Tui and Colin Wallace. Audio post-production and sound design by Sam Matt Dempsey.